Welcome to the Midwest Nice Podcast, the show with honest political discourse dipped in ranch. This is your host, John Flynn, and today I'm joined by Amy Lipka, Lauren Kaufman, and Mariel Brown Fallon. Keep your accent strong and the pasty close by because you're going to need it. Let's get the show started. Welcome back to the show. Uh, fourth show. Big, uh, not really a benchmark, but... Five's a benchmark. Five's a benchmark. I think four is the paper anniversary, so what is paper? paper? Oh, like... Like the gift like wedding that you're supposed to get us for yeah. the fourth episode. Well, I gave you a piece... Of, there's an outline sheet in front of you. <laughs> it is on paper. Can confirm, though. Yeah. Hearing it live here, I did give people a gift, and they have nothing to complain about. Except for that uh, it was given to us uh, two minutes before the show starts. But hey, you know, who we're doing it prep? live. We're doing it live every time, guys. Yeah. We are doing this show live. We are not scripted. It's pretty fun that way. We'll do it live. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. I um, script everything that I'm going to say. I don't know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> like in everyday life. Like in your life. daily yeah. life. Mm-hmm. You go on like. That makes sense. You heard me. Like when Leslie goes on a practice date. Just yes. everything is scripted. Speaking of which, happy ninth anniversary to Parks and Recreation. Um, our is it? favorite, yes, today. I think fact. it was also like it was the tenth anniversary of the dinner party episode of The Office yes. the other day, which it is was. my favorite. That's it's the first so uncomfortable. Watched. So uncomfortable. It's, the, it's a great first it's, one to ever amazing. watch. <laughs> the image of him looking at his like plasma TV is burned into my memory. <laughs> 20-inch plasma screen TV. <laughs> yeah. I guess it could have been worse. I could have, like, accidentally stumbled onto Scott's tots. Scott's tots. <laughs> yeah. A favor of some... Flashbacks. Lauren, have you ever seen it all others. the way through? I accidentally watched it the last time I was in D.C., and it was scarring again. So yeah. mm. um, anyways, for our <laughs> listeners out there, we are going to... Uh, so we're attempting to record these every Monday and then hopefully have them out Sometime Tuesday could take a little longer to come up on iTunes, but uh, yeah, moving forward, if you're uh, hopefully becoming a regular listener, a you can expect follower. these. A cult follower. We're big into cults here, too. We might start a cult podcast, too, but that's besides the point. Um, we will be trying to get out new episodes every Tuesday going forward, so hopefully that works out. Subscribe. Kind of totally like. on us to figure out. Retweet. Really putting a lot of confidence behind the podcast. Yeah. So uh, maybe uh, if you, I don't know, new episode to, every Tuesday. No, you're gonna listen. You're gonna subscribe. It's out every Tuesday. Follow us on Twitter at Midnice Cast. Mid- Mid- at Midwest Nice Cast. Midwest Nice Cast. I made it. Is our Twitter know. handle um, uh, and like us on Facebook. Yeah, and soon to be Instagram. Soon to be Instagram. Soon to be Instagram. Um. Anyways, should we talk? about you know a thing yeah we should talk about a thing yeah um so something that we've uh talked uh a decent amount about before but i thought was worthy of a of a more in-depth discussion uh discussion is the the real divide as that exists especially in michigan but in a lot of midwest and rust belt states the divide between the rural and city areas um this definitely happens everywhere but i think uh it's 
especially prominent in Rust Belt states just because of how um, industries and things like that have collapsed in the past and uh, the migrations in and out of cities have happened. Um, And like I said, it's something that's definitely really prominent here in Michigan. We have um, a pretty big expanse of rural area um, for the majority of the state and then probably five what you would call like you know a decent sized city and uh so we're talking detroit grand rapids ann arbor lansing maybe traverse city maybe marquette marquette Mm -hmm. alpina's decent size yeah um um but yeah definitely a real divide in that um uh, especially if you're talking about political leanings and you can see on uh, any sort of map of how people are voting. And rural areas are definitely going real strong conservative, especially in these past couple of elections. Um, and the cities have stayed, you know, pretty liberal stronghold for a long time, which is true of basically every big city in the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, if you look throughout history, cities have always kind of had a young population, people looking to make a start, um, try new things, moving away from family. Um, but I also think that, uh, especially in Michigan, and something that we saw a lot with cities like Detroit, um, you can't discount the effect that white flight had um, mm-hmm. in the 1950s, 60s. Um, and I think that that is part of the reason why we see so many, you know, decent sized, fairly conservative areas that have popped up around some of these areas. And I think that um, Grand Rapids is finally starting to kind of come around from that um, and has become a more progressive area with more young people, um, thanks to those breweries and all of those great amenities that the city has. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's part of it as well, that it's not just that traditional divide, but we are really seeing, um, you know, a little bit of evening out across the state. Um, after some of those really negative effects from the later half of the last century. Yeah, and pretty recently it's almost become a white flight back into cities, Um, especially if you're talking about, like, Detroit. Um, They've had quite the turnaround in the past uh, five, ten years. And you say turnaround, but to a lot of people it's, you know, it's not a perfect turnaround. I mean... And it's in, like, very specific areas, too, yeah, right? Because like, Detroit is a huge city as far as, like, you know, geographic, geographical, like, bounds go. It's really big. But um, because of what Lauren was saying about the white flight, there's a lot of it is, like, very sparsely populated, and there's a lot of abandoned buildings. And it's only in, like, certain specific, like, fun parts of the city that there's a lot of people coming back to now. Um, so... Yeah, if you're talking about, like, downtown Detroit, it's like, yeah, there's a really cool, like, gastropub on every street corner, but then if you travel a small distance out of the city center, it can be just as bad as it was, you know, 10 years ago. And I think real progress in a city is, like, grocery stores and machine shops and, you know, affordable... Real opportunities for people who affordable have family homes. ties there and maybe can't move and, yeah. you know... Yeah, I think that also, like, you would be doing this conversation, or we would be doing this conversation in justice if we didn't mention gentrification, obviously. Um, And 
having to figure out the balance between really wanting to bring life and excitement and opportunities back into these places that have been left, um, impacted by white flight, by income inequality, by um, factories and things leaving. Um, But so we want, you know, we want restaurants to come back. We want industries to come back. We want schools to be doing well and tax revenue to be happening. but it's difficult because I think that right now cities are struggling to find the balance between, um, you know, finding this part of Detroit and having a bunch of tech bros move in and like, um, you know, start to jack up the rate of rent in that area. And still, you know, kids who are going to public schools in the area are living in a food desert and they don't even have access to, um, you know, groceries or stores on a regular basis so i think that there's a lot of promising activity happening like especially when we talk about detroit but it seems like everywhere is struggling to find a happy medium between really like obvious gentrification and then like sustainable community and economic development yeah it's hard to know what exactly is the is the right solution because especially for um, young people, people just maybe getting out of college, anything like that. There's so much more economic opportunity in the cities, um, and especially in those, you know, hip city centers. It's, there's a reason why um, those are the places that are growing. All the money's going in there. So it's hard to make that decision to, like, um, for some people to say, like, I'm not going to go to a city or I'm not going to... Because another part of this is there's um, definitely been an exodus uh of especially recent college grads things like that leaving the state and really seeking economic opportunity in other states that are doing better than michigan is yeah we have kind of a joke but like not really a joke that like college students from like the major state schools either go to grand rapids or go to chicago yeah especially chicago um and you know i don't blame them and if i had if there was an opportunity out there when i was graduating or when I was looking for a job I definitely probably would have gone not that I'm a big city person I, I've never really had a great time when I've been to Chicago I I, I get glowing endorsement <laughs> what's, what's Chicago a, it's just okay what's reverse claustrophobia like when you can't agoraphobia <laughs> I don't I wouldn't say I'm agoraphobic <laughs> but like you heard it here first but you like, have a set. yeah but like yeah giant crowds of people giant buildings it all um, it makes me a little nervous. That's why I like DC a lot. What is it? The rule that nothing can be taller than the Washington Monument. So mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing's that huge. I feel like it's decently easy to get around. Yeah. yeah, lots of stuff to do. Yeah, which is also like going back to the conversation about Detroit. I think a lot of the problem is also just infrastructure and not having enough money, like in the city and in the surrounding areas, like wanting to help out the city that the infrastructure really isn't there so like we've probably talked about this before but public transportation is really bad because detroit was built on you know the big three making cars and now what (laughs) 
Lauren made a face at we me. Love our, we love our auto industry here in Michigan. We do. So we just need a healthy balance for those who want to drive cars and for those who yeah. want we still other need transportation them, opportunities. It's sort of in a you know standstill now with people who maybe can't afford to buy a car and still need to get around and our public transportation is Things are still really, really spread out too. Mm-hmm. Like even in cities, like, like here in Lansing, definitely not the biggest city in uh, Michigan. Everything is really spread out. Right. Um, well, and to speak to gentrification and what Marielle was talking about earlier, I think it's really important to keep in mind that public transportation is something that helps all different sorts of people at all different stages of their lives. So mm-hmm. when they were talking about building um, a massive um, infrastructure in Southeast Michigan, one of the things that they really focused on was the elderly, because as you get older, maybe having a car is out of your price range. Maybe it's not something that you feel comfortable operating or your children don't feel comfortable with you operating anymore. Um, So it's young people who want to have the freedom of not having a vehicle and losing that car and insurance payment every month. And then maybe it's families who want their kids to be able to go to a baseball game without having their parents drop them off, or it's older people um, who you know, don't want that car either. So um, it helps both people who are from the city and then people who want to transfer there. Yeah. And also people who maybe have job opportunities, but can't, you know, walk a few miles every day to work and back and don't have a car. Like what other option do they have? Right. Not having a job. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, going back to the uh, economic opportunity difference between you know, in city centers and in the suburbs and rural areas um, has always been a problem. And I think it grows, it makes the the partisan divide even wider um, when you factor in people who are, you know, in more rural areas, they feel like um, opportunity isn't coming that way and politicians aren't focusing on, you know, developing programs to increase the economy of uh rural areas and there's so much focus on the cities um so yeah i think that definitely leads to a lot of resentment and it's uh making the divide worse and it's not um a lot of the politicians aren't really they're sort of fostering that and making it worse for their own gain short-term gain but long-term it's um in the economy for everyone. Well, and I think that's kind of an interesting point because we're sort of seeing a reversal of roles right now where um, politicians, the government, um, they were very focused on helping the suburbs and helping to subsidize that when it was advantageous for them um, when people were trying to leave the cities. And so um, I think obviously folks in rural areas um, have been left behind in a lot of ways, um, but when we're subsidizing agriculture and things like that, that's also helping to take away some of the money that we could have for infrastructure. So I think it's about sort of finding that balance that uh, benefits all aspects of our communities and um, doing our best not to leave anyone behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also changing, shifting a little bit, still staying on this topic. It's interesting to be having this conversation because I am obviously somebody who, who did the opposite of what a lot of people are doing and that I, moved from a coastal state to a Midwestern state. And I think that part of the reason why I did that was because, I mean, this was a great, I had a great job opportunity um, in my field. And so 
I wanted to jump on top of it. And I was in a career oriented mindset. And I think that um, a lot of people, especially right out of college, aren't as willing to commit themselves to something like that. They want to pick a city that they want to live in and then the job comes second. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I think that it's important to be able to take that time to find yourself and figure out where you want to be and then figure out what you want to do. Um, but I think um, it's it's incredible the amount of people that I talked to back home. A lot of my friends moved to New York City and they tell me that they are paying as much in rent um, to live in a shared apartment as I well, they're paying more to live in a shared apartment than I am to live in my own apartment here. Mm -hmm. So it's just really interesting um, telling them these things about how low the cost of living is. And it really does make them think twice, but I think that it's going to take a little bit longer for people to get there. But I think people are going to realize that uh, there's a housing crisis going on right now in the United States, and housing is not going to be getting cheaper anytime soon. And as long as developers are still able to go into cities and make money, they're going to do it. And um, so while we do see, obviously, a trend of young people gravitating towards cities historically, I think that there's going to eventually have to be some sort of major shift. I think that we've seen it a little bit with people moving to places like like Asheville, North Carolina, um, Austin, Texas, which is now a lot bigger, um, and like even Indianapolis is like a cool city. They'll all come crawling back. They'll all come crawling back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that there is obviously that narrative still in place and still stands. But I think that, um, I don't know, just from my experience, like I was happy to come to the Midwest because I was, I needed to save money and I needed to like establish myself career wise. And it was a good choice for me. And I think that other people will start not having a choice and being like, I got to go to the Midwest. That's an interesting point that you brought up a second ago. Like the amount of people that I know that after college were like, I'm moving to Denver. And I was like, well, what are you doing? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> Who's going out there? There's a lot of people that I've talked to too who are from the Midwest and then are like, I want to end up in the Midwest eventually, but I want to yeah. like live somewhere else now and like move to a big city. Probably half the people I knew that like moved to Chicago or um, moved to out to Colorado or some people went to Arizona, they like, they're out there for like three years and then were like, I'm not saving any money and then came back. <laughs> well, I think, um, one reason for that is that the internet has kind of become a great equalizer. And so I know a lot of people who moved out to California for tech jobs and realized I could be doing the same thing in Ann Arbor, which isn't inexpensive by any means, but comparatively it is. And so Google has, you know, a tech hub there and East Lansing has IBM, correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's an IBM. Um, so there's a lot of tech things and Toronto is a huge tech hub. And it's like, you don't have to be on one of the coasts for those sorts of jobs. And as employers get more comfortable setting up satellite offices or having remote workers, um, it makes it a lot easier to have those sorts of, you know, good, high paying or at least affordable paying jobs centrally located in the U.S. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think also another part kind of moving the discussion from maybe young like college grads to people who are like probably going to be here anyway, but may not have a lot of opportunities to get a job or to go through training or to go to school. 
I think that's another area where our workforce development is really lacking. Um, and I know that there are some, especially in Detroit, some initiatives to get you know training and accessibility in the city up. But I think that's another part of the conversation that gets missed when we ask, like, why are all of our college students going elsewhere? There's a lot of people who would be more than willing to do training or go to school, but don't have the ability to. There was an article I read today that was like, there's hundreds of bus driving jobs out there, but these damn millennials don't want to take it. It's like, you're probably not paying very well. Um, there's that and just like the ability to get there, you know, communications to get the word out about these jobs. I'm sure that there are a lot of people who, you know, especially in the cities or rural areas that have sort of been forgotten. There are, there are opportunities open. But a lot of the time, the accessibility isn't there. And I think so often that becomes sort of like a pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of conversation. And it's like if if people aren't, you know, casting their net out wide enough and aren't communicating to people that like this is a thing that you could do. I mean, I'll say right now, I don't think I could drive a bus. Um, I will just say that straight up. Um, But I think that making sure that people know that these jobs are accessible to them, whether it's a training program that might give them – more manual skills or community college or university. There's a lot of people, um, you know, just from my experience being from a rural community, there's a lot of people out there in Michigan who don't think that those opportunities are for them. Yeah, there's there's so many jobs out there that, like, you don't even know exist, and they're desperate to, like, hire new people. I know one of the ones um, that they they really need people right now is people working for railroad companies. Just something you would never think of, probably never talked about in school, but like conductors all the way down to, you know, people doing maintenance and like a good friend of mine does, like he welds the tracks together, which is like extremely difficult to do. And I'm pretty sure he makes a lot of money. And uh, so there is, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity out there that's not, I don't know if, you know, those organizations are a little behind the times on marketing those jobs to people because I mean, the typical way that someone in our age group is finding a job now is online, social media, LinkedIn. Yeah, and I don't know about that one, but I do know I met a guy who works on, I think it's telephone poles, but in remote areas like Alaska, Mm -hmm. and I think he was in Europe for a while, Um, and he only works, I think it was like three months a year or six months a year, and he makes... very sizable income but it's like also what kinds of sacrifices do you have to make for some of these jobs like there's a lot of (laughs) there's a lot of bears Bears. (laughs) bear risks um you know but when you're saying like oh oil rigs have great high paying jobs it's like yeah but can you leave your family can you commute there can you afford to -hmm. live in these places and so i think um you know we need to cut millennials some slack there's a lot of different considerations that people make when they're taking jobs Also, just this is a whole other podcast subject, (laughs) but the um, economy of unpaid internships that people are constantly getting sucked Mm -hmm. into. So millennials get a bad rap and say that they are lazy or that they are picky. But the reality is, is that oftentimes millennials are taking two or three or four unpaid internships in a row in order to qualify to get that entry level job that they want. Um, so I think that there is a lot of work that millennials do that 
that goes overlooked and uncounted in a really unfair way. Yeah, yep. and to speak to that, when I was looking for my first job out of college in 2013, they said that they were looking for people with seven to 10 years experience in social media. And it's like, are the people who were doing MySpace in 2003? <laughs> social media didn't really exist 10 years <laughs> ago. Necessarily the best equipped to handle those jobs. And so I think you do have a high barrier to entry for a lot of um, young people who are looking for work. So yep. that's a great point. Yeah. yeah. I know my first internship was unpaid and it was, I was getting college credit for it too. So I was actually paying <laughs> to drive into Detroit an hour each way every day to do an unpaid internship. Um, eventually led to a good paid opportunity, but um, definitely not something that, um, and it's definitely a privilege that I was able to do that. Like I was living with my parents and didn't really have many expenses and um, they helped me on, you know, car payments and things like that. So there's so many people out there and so much untapped talent that doesn't have that opportunity. Um, and then that's going back to the original uh, point about, you know, opportunity in rural areas versus the suburbs versus cities versus um, there's a whole array of different living situations that can affect people's ability to, to uh, succeed. Um, full circle. Full circle. Um, something else for our listeners at home. You may, uh, from time to time, hear footsteps in the background or creaking or uh, loud people walking around upstairs. We're not in a professional sound studio. Uh, we're on a set of Ikea tables in the back of our office. <laughs> um, we have decent equipment, but... I think the ambient noise really... Um, lends an air of authenticity yeah though. this is real we're, midwest sound we're really in a, right we're here. in a midwest office there's cars driving outside there's um creaky floors people yeah this is a our our office building used to be a a sugar factory so you know old wood floors the whole spiel. i did not know that those two things went together <laughs> yeah sugar factories and old wood floors well now it's I know. old yeah <laughs> anyways uh unrelated topic but uh, something that I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss uh, because of how uh, current it is, is the uh, issue that's going on right now with Facebook data breaches. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is actually testi or testified already. Um, testified today. Testified yeah. today. Yeah, it's, it's about 6 p.m. here where we're recording. Um, uh, testified today to Congress about Facebook's role in the data breach and all the, you know, failures that happened on their part. Um, I, I uh, actually tweeted about this today, and my question was, do you guys think Mark Zuckerberg wore his regular gray T-shirt, or do you think he wore a tuxedo T-shirt to dress it up a little <laughs> bit? Do they make tuxedo hoodies? Um, one of, Probably. One of the president's advisors said that he needed to clean up his act and stop wearing the hoodie and dungarees, I believe <laughs> is dungarees. the term, which is apparently a um, term for denim pants. Oh. I had to Google it because it's 2018. Hmm. Yeah. That's an interesting choice of words. What? I so, love that. Yeah. How old was that man? Very, very old. Um, so, yeah, he's testifying today. Um I think the latest uh, admission that they had made was that 87 million people were uh, their data was breached. Um, I'm I'm gonna guess it's higher than that. I'm gonna guess it's closer <laughs> into the billion or more mark, or you know all of their users. 
Yeah. So for people who aren't super acquainted with what happened, I did read through some of the testimony today. We were kind of passing it back and forth around the office. And the way that it worked is, you know, when you take those um, silly quizzes um, online, like which celebrity cat are you, for example, um, you have to like submit your Facebook information or give them access to your profile. Right. Um, And usually it has some bearing on the quiz itself. So it'll be something like, you know, you give that information and then you can share your result when you're done. Um, The way that this worked is that you went through and gave them access to your information, but the quiz itself actually had nothing to do with the Facebook platform. So there was no real reason for them to be gathering your information. Mm -hmm. And I think they said something like 300,000 people took this quiz, which if you ever did one of the surveys in college, it's on Qualtrics, um, which is a website that facilitates a lot of these. Um, but it got access to all of your friends' data as well. So it was their birth dates and their email addresses and every page that they liked. And so it's a significant number of people who are taking these quizzes. I think you got some sort of financial reward, like a gift card or something in exchange. Um, but it was a lot of people who didn't opt into it, but their friends did on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of a different layer of this. So even if you were being careful with your data, if your aunt wasn't, um, your information also got passed. Which she never is. You know, she's <laughs> taking quizzes 24-7. You know you what Power like Ranger character she is, and you also know what she would be if she were an animal. Yeah. Um, yeah, another suggestion that has been brought up in a couple of articles is should you know, the people whose data breached be compensated for their data being sold without their consent. Um, I mean, I, I feel like that's not how it works. So it's, it's interesting know. because this did violate Facebook's terms of service during the time period. Um, it's also interesting that this happened in 2015 and they didn't really seem to tell anyone. Right. Um, and so it's, it'll be interesting to see if this is an ongoing problem that's been happening since then because we keep getting the rollout of, you know, we found more Russian accounts. What was the other one? Was it Macedonian accounts recently where they were trying to influence Facebook ads? Um, so it'll be interesting to see if this was an isolated incident or if it went on between 2015 and the time the election happened. Yeah, there was also that leaked internal memo where that guy was like, yeah, maybe a terrorist attack gets planned on our platform, but, you know, what are you going to do? we got to make more people connected. we got to connect right. people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that Facebook, obviously, and that's a good segue into, they are making some serious changes to the way um, that their advertising tools function. And I think that that's fantastic. Um, and I think that that's great because... Um, at the company that we work for, we use Facebook's advertising tools for a lot of different things. Um, and some of the things that they're going to be doing now are verifying the identities of people who are advertising things. They're also going to be making it more clear that political advertisements are political advertisements so that people will see a disclaimer in the corner. And I think that as people who use these tools in a responsible way and in the way that they are supposed to be used, Um, I don't see a problem with it. I don't think that it's going to super impact the work that we do, but you never know. And I also think that it all depends on how Facebook follows through with their new, you know, their new wave of accountability and transparency. And and we'll see if it actually comes to fruition. Yeah, they I think the only way forward is 
more regulation. Um, sort of as a platform, I know less and less young people are actually using it as a social media. So it's sort of transforming into, well, it already is, you know, a massive advertising platform, but it's going to sort of be the database, I guess, for a lot of different, like they own Instagram and a lot of different apps. So I think that's the future of Facebook is that they are sort of a base platform for a lot of other apps to build off of, which is something else that people need to think about when they're, you know, they say like, well, I deleted Facebook, so now I'm in the clear. It's like, no, well, they, you know, their tentacles reach out to a lot of different apps. Um, yeah. And like, how many apps do you log into? And they're like, do you want to log in using Facebook? Right. It's like if, every app. If you're still on Tinder, then you're also still on Facebook. Yeah. Their Boom. future is more like Google than, you know, MySpace. They're just lingering in the background. <laughs> They're kind of there at all times. They're like that annoying Tinder date when you're trying to go on your other Tinder date and you like see that guy in the what? back and you're like, uh. what? <laughs> Lauren knows what I'm talking I about. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking I, uh, about. I started dating my girlfriend before Tinder came out. So totally, that world is totally foreign to me. It's it's hard out here, John. I, so. I, it seems like it. Um, but I think to to that point and to Mariel's point, I think that Facebook has a lot of opportunity for good. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have seen a lot of, you know, as much as we, as much as we have talked about that memo where um, an engineer from Facebook suggested that maybe if someone died as a result of their platform, it wasn't their responsibility or fault. Um, we do see people connecting with each other. And that was his point was that they're belief above all else is that they're a platform for good and a platform for connecting people and that that was their main priority and their main um objective and so i think that um keeping that in mind and just kind of facebook needs to decide what it can do to um eliminate some of these some of these risks because as an open source platform it's going to be a lot harder than regulating um, a television network and advertising in that way Right, and you hit on this a little bit, Lauren, but just, like, this is so unprecedented in terms of internet advertising and social media and, you know, all these things that haven't really had, have had to be regulated very much before or, like, existed for enough time for us to know what to do. So everyone's kind of making it up as they go in terms of, you know, what do we do with Facebook? What do they do internally? So I think it'll just be interesting to see what happens after this. And the other thing that I wanted to sort of bring up is um, when you were talking about political ads, Mariel, and the changes that they're making there. So even though the two things are connected in my head, like the, you know, Russians buying Facebook ads to influence the elections and this Cambridge Analytica leak are sort of separate things that Facebook is responding to at the same time. They're, they're connected. So far, <laughs> so they're, far connected, they're completely right. separate things. Well, and part of it is like the, the reason that Facebook has to make changes is because people know about it, right? And they were presented at different times for different reasons. So that's also, you know, the things that they're reacting to seem to be different things. And even if they are connected, like we don't know that, you yeah. know, at this point. That's also when you're talking about Google too, like I feel like things may have happened on Google and Amazon and whatever else. We just, just don't, don't know, know about, about it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and to your point about uh, Facebook making it up as they go along, 
Um, they actually announced that during the Alabama Senate election, they did use machine learning to try to identify some of these ads and look for suspicious behavior and identify political ads from other ads. So I think that they really are um, making an effort maybe in some ways that we don't know. And it does seem like some things were going as we found out that they knew about some of these problems during the election and didn't necessarily divulge that information, um, we do see them and their engineers really working towards solutions. And so I think that um, having people call them out on this is really helping them change their practices. So I think it could be a good force for change. Yeah. And I think people are calling Facebook out for, you know, what they've been doing in a way that we don't normally demand from corporations and other companies. So Mm -hmm. um, as much as I agree that it's like been shady that they didn't divulge that information we also like don't expect you know credit card companies to tell us exactly where our data is going um even though we kind of know that that's happening so. even though yeah, yeah and even though we, we know it's being right. sold to credit bureaus and then that's a whole different thing that is also going on but i think that the yeah the facebook data in terms of like getting people getting compensation for their data being leaked i mean like there's an agreement that absolutely nobody reads when they register for Facebook um, because it's so long and it's legal terminology and whatever. And I think that people agree to a lot of things even though they don't know they're agreeing to it. And even if it's not necessarily the most uh, moral thing to do to like put a lot of small print in there that you know people aren't going to read, it's not the most ethical thing to do, but it's a thing. Well, and I think... Um there is sort of that trade-off too of what are you okay with them doing with your information. Right. Like I love remarketing ads. If I go to shop for a thing and then I don't, I leave it in my shopping cart, I don't purchase it, I like to get that reminder sometimes. Like, oh, you were supposed to get that thing for your mom. You really liked those pair of shoes. Um, and I don't care that Facebook has that information. And so um, I think that when they, when people are playing by the rules that they put forward, everything is fine. Um, but they do need right. to be better about holding places like this accountable and saying, hey, do you really, why are you scraping all of that information? Which I think that they have put, um, they have taken a couple of apps and stopped them from scraping as much information as what they were getting before. So, yeah, to quote the great uh, Ben Wyatt, <laughs> you shouldn't have to have a law degree in order to avoid um, being taken advantage of by a multi billion dollar company. True facts. So relevant. Love him. Ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, using Twitter, I do feel better that according to the ads that I'm getting, they have no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely something important to talk about. Um, it seems, you know, I'm staying optimistic, especially considering uh, this definitely affects stuff that we do at our work. Um, and hopefully they continue to to work and improve and and things improve at Facebook. Um, so quick uh, quick break. Let's get into um, get into this week's trivia. Uh, our very own Amy Lipka is going to be running trivia again by popular demand. Um, probably did trivia better than better than me. So get into it again. Okay. So also back by popular demand. Not backed by popular demand, but um, I'm doing multiple choice questions, which popular demand just means that I wanted to do it. And so I did it. Fascist. I'm not 
going to make the quiz master angry. I think so. it cheapens the whole thing. <laughs> I don't care about your opinion. That's fine because mm. I don't think that you want to do the work for trivia. So I'm just going to continue to do it. Mm. <laughs> okay. It hurts. I, <laughs> I have three questions for you and then a bonus question. None of that really bonus means question. anything because you don't win anything anyway, but it's fine. We can come up with prizes eventually. <laughs> It's yeah. Pride. Mm. Yeah. You get a 30 second plug at the end of the episode. For, for just it, you? Yeah. For, <laughs> We're all on the episode. <laughs> yeah. You can find me on Instagram. Oh, I don't want people to find me. Mm. All right. Number one. So I'm not sure how to pronounce this name. It's either Cologne, Michigan or Colon, Michigan. Let's hope but it's Cologne. Like Cologne, Germany? I mean... Going with the bowels of the Midwest, I'm going to say colon. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Okay, we'll, ready? We'll do colon. Colon, Michigan is known as the what capital of the world? Is it A, maple tree capital of the world? B, magic capital of the world? C, firework? Or D, bread and butter pickle? I think I actually know the answer to this one. I might actually see the answer for this when I was trying to find trivia questions another way. So I will go, I will answer last. Okay, Lauren, what do you think? I, I'm going to go with the bread and butter pickle capital. Okay. I like it. Cool. Mariel? To be honest, I was too busy thinking about the pickle one that I forgot the other <laughs> option. Yeah, I'm going to read them again. But oh, no, I'm going to go with the third to last. Firework? Yes, fireworks. Okay. John? And I think it's magic. John is correct. It's the magic. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I will preface by saying that I only knew that because I was reading other trivia things it's to come up with victory, trivia. It's John. a very, it doesn't feel good. There are <laughs> a lot of firework stores nearby. So there are. I get see, that. Do you see how and I could have thought that? I Googled. Midwest foods when I was trying to think of a fourth option mm -hmm. and it said bread and butter pickles So I just put that and hoped it would fool someone. Sorry, Lauren um, Also, so a little blurb about the magic capital of the world. It's a small city of about uh, 1,100 people and it manufactures more magic supplies than anywhere else has three magic stores hosts two magic conventions each year and even has a cemetery full of interred magicians didn't houdini die in detroit isn't that where he got punched i think so don't know so that's bold for yeah. them to is to their mayor's name job <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if anyone's vying for the title i'm gonna guess probably not but it's fine all right we ready for question two i think i'm ready okay before it was established as the state capital, St. Paul, Minnesota was formerly known as what? A, Hogs Hallow. B, Truth or Consequences. C, Fort Mill. D, Pig's Eye. Or E, Prairieville. That's a tough one. I think I have a guess. They all, they all sound like Harry Potter cities. <laughs> Do you guys need the options again? 
Yeah. Yeah? Okay. So this was the former name of St. Paul. A, Hogs Hollow. B, Truth or Consequences. C, Fort Mill. D, Pig's Eye. Or E, Prairieville. I'm going to say Truth or Consequences only because I don't see why you would make that up as an answer to this question. I am going to also say Truth and Consequences for the exact same reason that John said, only he said it first. So, Stealing your ideas. I don't know who that makes right, but I don't think that the way that this works is that I have to pick an answer I think is wrong just because John picked the right answer on the first guess. Okay. Okay. Correct? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to say Fort Mill because I don't want to get in the middle of this. Okay. So, all of you are wrong. Oh, <laughs> God! No, God, please, but, no! But no! truth or consequences no! is a real place, yes. right? Okay. I, I will read where I got all of these. I thought if I made up all the rest of them, then mm-hmm. you guys would catch on. So, the real answer is Pig's Eye, Ugh. which... <laughs> Which was named after a retired fur trader turned bootlegger, whose name was actually Pierre, but he went by Pig's Eye for whatever reason. So he set up a tavern named Pig's Eye, and everyone just started calling the whole town Pig's Eye. And then later it ended up being named after a chapel named after St. Paul. Hmm. That's better. Unfortunately. Oh. Yeah. But we still all got it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So the other options, Hogs Hollow is what Utica, Michigan used to be named. So Mm -hmm. surprise. Um, Prairieville used to be a town in Wisconsin. Truth or Consequences is a real town in New Mexico that was named after an NBC radio program in 1950. (laughs) I don't know. Um, And Fort Mill I just made up, but there's probably a town called that somewhere. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I fell for the only one that wasn't real. You did. Okay. Don't okay. like multiple choices. <laughs> <laughs> it would, it would I'm so. feeling good about multiple choices, you guys. <laughs> okay. Number three. Cleveland, Ohio is home to the first blank in the United States, which began working on August 5th, 1914. A, the first traffic light. B, the first professional city fire department. Or C, the first ambulance service. I also think I saw this while looking up other Michigan trivia lists, so I will wait Mm -hmm. to go last again. So this is the first what in Cleveland in 1914. Do you guys want the choices again, or are you good? I'm just going to say ambulance service. Okay. Mariel? Well, I was going to say ambulance service, but I will say traffic light. I will say traffic light. Okay. I think it's traffic light. So John and Mariel are correct. Yes. But (laughs) hold that applause for as long as you can. (laughs) So the first traffic light began to work in Cleveland in 1914, but the other two also started in Ohio. So the first ambulance service was established in Cincinnati in 1865, mm-hmm. and the first professional city fire department began in Cincinnati in 1853. Well, that's a neat question. Mm-hmm. We get to learn a bunch of things. A bunch of stuff <laughs> about Ohio, though, so I don't feel good about it, you guys. Mm. 
Okay, on to the bonus question. I just thought that it was timely. <laughs> Walmart yodeling kid is oh, thank God. Surprisingly, thank God we're talking about this. <laughs> surprisingly from what Midwestern state? Hmm. Lauren, we looked this up the oh, other day, right. but I had forgotten. I, so. am, I do know this. I'm going to guess Indiana. Mm-hmm. Surprising in what way? Surprising that it's not like Alabama. In no. that it's the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Oh. Wisconsin. Lauren? Oh, well, I, I was the one who Wikipedia this. I know, and I was with you, but I had forgotten. Illinois, I believe. It Southern is Illinois. Illinois. It is Southern Illinois. Uh, yeah. Damn it, Jerry. Uh, <laughs> it's basically Kentucky. So. so is Southern Indiana. Uh, but that kid has the voice of an angel. So He has he does. a voice. <laughs> he does have a voice. All right, that's it for trivia, you guys. I feel good about it. That great, was great. Great work, Amy. Yeah. I think we can all feel good about that. Um. <laughs> all right, let's get into some Midwest current events. Oh, yeah. Uh, something I just, well, it's been in the news a lot, but um, a recent article about charter schools in Michigan. Um, they become more prominent in Michigan recently. Um, and there's a, a yearly report about, you know, what schools in the state are having trouble, um, which ones need more support, um, and which ones need to enter a partnership with the state in order to work on a plan to, to improve their standardized test scores and things like that. Um, and the recent report got, li- uh, uh, got posted on Friday, and 16 of the 21 schools there on the list are actually charter schools. Um, the list of, sorry, schools that are doing poorly? School, yeah, that are doing, they didn't mm. do well on standardized tests and they're in need of um, improvement either mm. by grades or they're, um, there's problems with the actual school or they need more funding, things like that. Got it. Um, so yeah, these, these are obviously a really controversial subject, especially in Michigan. Um, in a lot of the big cities, they've sort of become, you know, it, it's it's really been opened up for for charter schools in Michigan. And in a lot of areas, it's really the only viable option for kids to go to school. Thanks Betsy Um, DeVos. Yeah. And so basically they are privately run institutions that also receive public funding. And so, you know, it's like a public school, but without all of the uh, great regulations that uh, governments come up with in order to, make sure that people aren't misusing funds or making sure that they're keeping on track with other uh, schools and things like that. I'm just going to say I have an issue with the entire premise of charter schools. Mm -hmm. Um, I think education should be a public good. It should be a public service. There are very few things that bind us as a society and making sure that our children are prepared to be the future generation that leads our country should be one of those things. Right. Um, and yeah, uh, something that, uh, Mariela just mentioned is that, um, the current secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, uh, she hails from Michigan. Um, the DeVos family is a, you know, a, a powerful force on the West side of Michigan. If anyone is listening somehow who is not in Michigan or doesn't know this, a lot of Grand Rapids just has the DeVos name like slapped mm-hmm. all over it. Like everything is the device, pretty much. You know something. Yeah, and um, so they, yeah, they definitely wield a lot of influence in the state. Um, and then obviously, you know, Betsy DeVos is the Secretary of Education now, and they're the the DeVos 
organizations are also heavily invested in charter schools and um, companies that uh, that um, buy and sell uh, student loan debt. Um, a lot of things that people, you know, are not fans of. Um, so it, it, it hit, it's almost, you know, embarrassing that uh, some of that and those ideals are coming out of Michigan. Um, and I know basically every teacher friend that I have, and I have a lot of friends who are teachers, have a big problem with charter schools. Um, and the ones who do work at charter schools aren't big fans of working there, both because of the, you know, the politics of it, as well as, you know, I, apparently there are a lot of institutional issues with working for charter schools. It's not as, uh, they, they aren't treated as well as they're at public schools and teachers aren't really treated that well at public schools either. So it's gotta be mm -hmm. pretty bad. Yeah, well, to Amy's point about the DeVos family and their influence in West Michigan, um, to their credit, they have done a lot of good, donating mm -hmm. money to help open hospitals and um, like the Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids and things like that. Um, but I think that that philosophy isn't necessarily, isn't what we need in schools. Right. Um, that, it, like I said, I think that it should be a public good. And when you decide that you're going to try to run it as either a corporation or as not a charity, but that sort of idea that like, if you throw enough money at the problem, you can fix it, but not for everyone. Um, only the people who have access to it. And I think that that's kind of the issue with her overarching view on what schools should be. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is part of, you know, getting to the heart of like why charter schools as an idea is, you know, not great. Just not everyone has access to it. A lot of times they will, um, increase the divide between, you know, education and opportunity between economic classes, things like that. And then also to John's point about there's little oversight and regulation to what happens there. And if you haven't seen the John Oliver episode on charter schools, go watch it immediately because it is shocking. Um, just just charter schools as a whole, yes, it's a, it's a great idea to be able to have schools that work for specific populations of students, that give opportunities to kids that might not have access to a great public school, but at the end of the day, public charter schools don't solve the root of the problem, which is that we need to be providing a quality education to every child in the United States not put up barriers um, to folk to, you know, not put up additional barriers. Like if you can pay for it, you can get the school. That doesn't solve the root of the problem. And I think that, that that's the big issue with charter schools is that it's putting a Band-Aid on something that might, you know, work for some kids, but overall does more harm than it does good. Right. And it's a Band-Aid for some people and not for everybody. Right. Yeah. Right. And there's been, you know, it's been a problem going back decades that, divestment of state governments into public education from you know grade schools and early education all the way up to public universities um you know tuitions have been getting hiked every year they're getting less and less money from the state um and it's sort of you know funneling opportunity going back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast funneling opportunity further and further up towards people you know who are already towards the top well, and in a lot of southern states, you saw that shift in investment happen after schools were desegregated. 
Um, and so I think that that's an important aspect of this too, is that we're trying to fix schools which were defunded during that time period by slapping this charter school band-aid on them. And it's like, there is a lot of really great innovation that's happening in these schools. Like I don't doubt the passion that these educators are putting into these classrooms, but that innovation should be happening in a way that's going to benefit all American children and not just these smaller populations. And something else that I um, was also reading is that, um, so yeah, these charter schools, they're privately run, but they can receive public funding. And in Michigan, they've actually been receiving 20 to 30% more on average than the standard public schools. Um, I did not know that. That's really terrible. Yeah, yeah. And in 2014, there was a huge scandal because something happened where a, I think a guy got a bunch of money to start one of these schools. And then he hired, I think, his brother and sister-in-law to build it. And so they were using this this system to funnel money into corporations that were owned by the people who were starting the school. And so there was a lot of self-interest in it, and that became kind of a big campaign talking point in 2014. Mm. Yeah, it's created another, you know, industry that's rife with opportunity for corruption. Well, it's more for-profit education, Mm -hmm. um, but they're using public school funds for it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's like, let's take the ITT tech business model. That's going great, and let's start sending grade school kids into a program like that. Yeah, it's horrible. And I think that it kind of just feeds into this mentality that a lot of people have come into, I think, in the United States, which is that I've got mine and I don't really care about anybody else. And I think that plays out in you see parents say, well, I have the money. I should be able to send my kids to whatever school I want to. If my public school is crumbling in my town, then I'm going to send my kids to a better school because I can afford it. Um, and I should be able to do that if I want to. But the problem becomes is that, yeah, if if everybody thinks that way and nobody wants to invest in public goods anymore, um, then things are going to crumble. Infrastructure that we've built our society on is going to crumble. And um, I think it's just a really selfish mentality that people have gotten into. You see it in older people saying that they don't want to you know, pay taxes that go into schools. You see people saying, like, you know, I don't want to pay taxes for these things that I don't benefit from. But again, I love the, my brother is hilarious on Facebook. His favorite thing to share is the meme in the winter that that's like, oh, here comes the socialist snowplows because everybody doesn't <laughs> understand that, like, you pay your taxes and it goes to things like plowing the roads. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, um, the proliferation of, charter schools is um it capitalizes on that mentality of some people will be able to send their kids there and the majority of them will not and the majority of them will be students of color students who um don't have as many opportunities and it's gonna feed into the inequality that we see in this country and it's horrible yeah and on that point it reminds me like tying back to the white flight conversation we're having earlier it reminds me of like basically that same thing in a lot of areas where like, hey, the public schools aren't great here. Instead of trying to invest in them, we're just going to build our own school. And then now we have a lot of those people in power and even the government funds are going to the charter schools now, too. Well, I think it's a I think it's a really hard conversation or idea for a lot of parents. I don't know if any of you guys have seen um, Waiting for Superman, which was the documentary about, I think it was the D- Detroit, or the, sorry, D.C. public school system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had a lot of parents who 
really put all of their hopes in this lottery that their kids were going to get into these charter schools. And it's just, it's really sad that, you know, that was kind of, they felt like a last hope for their kids. Like if their kids wanted to get where they wanted to go when they were 25, that it was going to be getting into this school when they were in sixth grade. And so the idea that um, you know, I believe that that kind of education can be accessible to all students across the country. But if we keep investing in these outside systems rather than back in our public schools and our public school teachers and our classrooms and our books, then we're not going to get there. Right. Yeah. And I think that's also an important like empathy thing to understand because like we can all sit here, we're all in our 20s and have no kids <laughs> and say like we need to like invest in public education. But I do get that if it's your kid and you don't want to send them, you know, invest your child into a school that might not prepare them for what you want for them, then I understand that that's really difficult. Yeah, it's easy to say, um, yeah, when it's not your kid. And going back to um, what Lauren was talking about, how um, something that's not quite as significant at the time, you know, can snowball into the direction that your kid is going to be going into forever. And I think um, even going back to, you know, when I was taking the MEEP test and stuff like that in like middle school, and that would decide if you could be in the advanced classes in high school. And then if you were in the advanced classes in high school, you probably did better on the ACT and SAT classes and got into a better college. And so thinking about stuff like that, and then adding on top of it, like institutionalized educational issues where kids aren't, you know, properly prepared for stuff from the very beginning based on what schools they're getting into or what schools they're able to go to. Um, it's just that butterfly effect and it can be catastrophic for people's lives. Right. So, I, but I do think that in thinking about that and thinking about like, yes, empathizing with a parent who, you know, if they send their kid to a charter school, then that can like exponentially increase the likelihood that that child will succeed in that specific case. Like I totally get that. But I think that at the end of the day, we all need to be bringing it back to the root of the problem, which is that we need to stop stripping public schools of their funding and we need to start investing in our kids and in our communities and, um, you know, start taxing billionaires and corporations at an appropriate rate so that we can afford to have our society run in the way that it should and not be, you know, doing what comes afterwards, which is cutting cutting uh taxes for billionaires and then cutting social security and medicare because we can't afford to pay for the tax cuts and you see where i'm going with this sorry rant over rant over i don't know it sounds like a bunch of commie drivel to me (laughs) but you know this is america yeah i mean okay yeah my mom is a teacher so i love teachers and i just think that they are such hard workers and incredible people and they put up with a lot and um you know they deserve to be respected and be invested in and and kids are important, I think. So. Yeah, and when controversial opinion there, Mary, <laughs> you know, kids, are, kids are important. Hot take. I think. Hot take. <laughs> I think kids are important. Yeah, and going back to what you said about teachers, like when public schools don't get the funding that they should, like the teachers are like the end of the line, right? Like they're the ones who surpri- who provide emotional support and who go out and buy pencils and books and on their limited salaries, and so just thinking about how this is kind of all goes together that paying teachers more can, you know, make sure that your kids have a better education and making sure that the schools that they go to have funding can make sure that that happens. Yeah. And to tie that into the um, massive 
protests and strikes that we've seen with teachers across the South. Um, I think that's just an amazing thing where these teachers are on CNN and they're not just talking about their salaries. They're largely talking about, you know, look at my classroom books. They're falling apart. Um, look at the floors or we don't have heat in our classrooms and the kids are freezing all day. Um, and I think that they're really going to bat for their students. And that's really important that we're listening to the educators who are really there on those front lines every day, um, trying to make sure that kids get the attention that they deserve. Right. Interesting note is also you don't hear many of them calling uh, for more arms. I think that you hear them calling for, uh, you know, books and a reasonable salary. So that's just something to note. But what are we going to do about the bears? <laughs> You're right. Bringing it back to You're the right. bears. Yeah, right. those schools in the UP, Upper Peninsula for people not from Michigan. Upers. Uh, what are they going to do about Learning the bears quickly. that are breaking down doors in their classrooms? Betsy DeVos will save Every them all. Every day. She'll get out there. She's going to be out there. I heard she's going to visit maybe gun. one or two classrooms this year. So Of the bad schools? No, uh, the good schools. Oh, my oh, bad. I'm sorry. Shucks. We'll get her next year. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be here. Um, yeah, definitely uh, definitely important topic right now. Um, yeah, and especially tying in the uh, pretty successful uh, teacher protests that are going on across the country. We're all supporting you and uh wish you the best of luck and hopefully things continue to improve rock on that's exactly how i ended the last segment hopefully things continue to improve (laughs) it's an optimistic podcast 2018 hopefully Um, things will improve yeah that's the motto uh so next up we'll get into our usual uh silver linings i know it's uh definitely a favorite section of mine and on a good note um and especially, so last week uh, was a bit of a roller coaster. The story about Mike the cow, um, and uh, there were tears. There was tears. There was we actual. Laughed, we cried. There was actual tears. I'm crying again, um, you guys. So this article is just straight up nice. There's no <laughs> up and down. There's no uh, controversy. There's no no anything. So um, I'll read the the title of the article first, and I think you can you can guess how important this. Uh, what's happening truly is uh so the article is titled unicorn edible raw cookie dough is popular treat at bay city coffee shop so we did it guys uh someone in michigan finally figured out how to make raw cookie dough that is 100 percent fda compliant safe for everyone to eat oh my god can we get air horns yeah We finally did it. Wow. Um, So, yeah, a Bay City ice cream shop has figured out how to make raw cookie dough that is 100% safe to eat because it contains no raw egg or raw flour. Owner Mike, Mike again, Mike Hanley, uh, Hanley started experimenting with making it last fall. After perfecting several recipes, he launched the new product line March 31st during an event he advertised on Facebook. Uh, Hanley said that they were slammed. they slammed to them. They said they sold 75 servings of it's yes. called adventure dough. Um, I, I have a quick it's... question for the middle of this. So, Oh, they in... have multiple flavors. It's called adventure dough, but the flavor that they were selling was unicorn. Oh, did yeah. you know it that it's like... national unicorn day today, John? Is that the tie in? I, it is now. I didn't know it was. <laughs> that yeah. was the plan. It looks like, lot. it looks like it was like funfetti kind cool. of thing. So like normal cookie dough ice cream is, not okay to eat i don't think it's real 
it might not okay. be or maybe so, if it's frozen it's okay i, I don't know i don't think idea i make vegan chocolate chip cookies but i don't know that you w- and i will taste the dough but Got you it. wouldn't want to con- like consume massive amounts so i mm. think they have like a different kind of recipe mm. because normal cookie dough i do want to ingest massive right. amounts. yeah exactly. okay yeah. got it yeah and now you can do it 100 percent safely well besides like you know your cholesterol and other, <laughs> other obvious Bring issues. it back to the nice Still John. a lot of butter. Uh, yeah. And so uh, he has another new product coming. The place is called Adventure Coffee is what the that place is called. That makes way more sense with Adventure Dough. Yeah. Um, so he has another product coming soon too that's Thai fried rolled ice cream. Mm. So it seems like it's like sushi, but ice cream, something like that. Uh, he's going to have it out by Memorial Day. Um, like, like ice cream tempura? Yeah, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a but real I, entrepreneur, this guy. I like it. Podcast road trip. Yeah, that's the small business dream <laughs> in the Midwest. Hmm. Uh, Can I ask what unicorn flavored ice cream tastes like? Is it like it Superman? Looked like, it looked like Funfetti to me is what mm. it looked like. Okay. Um, but yeah, apparently the people that were, they said, because you think, you know, it doesn't have the normal ingredients that maybe it wouldn't taste quite like real, you know, it would taste like that ice cream that's like what's that ice cream called that's only like a certain amount of calories oh, for halo a pint. Top? Halo, halo top. top yeah but apparently this tastes just like the real thing and halo top definitely does not oh okay <laughs> well let's cool it a little bit i do like halo I'll top i don't like it too pint. but it doesn't taste yeah. there's something off yeah um yeah there is something off it doesn't. so we're not it's going not for seven thousand calories that's what's off yeah so just yeah a real testament to the innovation that's coming out of the midwest um yeah, so this place is in Bay City. Let's uh, do a quick shout out. Uh, it's called Adventure Coffee. Adventure Coffee it was formerly called The Fix Coffee Shop. It's located at 5 East Main Street. And the menu also includes coffee and espresso drinks, tea, smoothies, and other cafe staples, plus handcrafted chocolates, cookies, and more. And hopefully they sponsor us after this. <laughs> if we can't get those damn mattress companies to return our phone calls. <laughs> Yeah, I know I asked a lot of questions during that, but I am into the ice cream, and we should go once it stops snowing outside. Down. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. It's it's fake spring right now, y'all. It's snowed today, and it is April 9th, okay? <laughs> Maybe I'm not used to it, but I think that that's kind of ridiculous. It's pretty bad. Um, and what was... Uh, so, not really a special shout-out this week, but there was something that uh, I think Amy had just brought to my attention about a political ad with brian kelly oh so that i think really, we should, it's funny enough that i think it's something good to end on really quick story so we talked about the governor's race a couple weeks ago current governor is rick snyder and his whole thing is that he's one tough nerd i'm pretty sure that's his twitter handle he yeah, ran on being a nerd right. it's weird so um i saw a tv ad for brian kelly who's the current lieutenant governor He's the one who looks like Niles from Frasier, just mm-hmm. to bring it full circle. Um, and the commercial ended on Rick Snyder saying the one downside to Brian Kelly is that he's way too cool to be a nerd. And for those of you out there who have not seen him or listened to him, he is definitely not cool enough to be a nerd. <laughs> to not be a nerd. Or to not be, a, yeah. He's not cool. It all. was not a 
good ads. He doesn't look cool. He doesn't sound cool. The his ad was idea, bad. His ideas are uncool. <laughs> He's bad, and he should feel bad. I, I told Amy that I saw someone had tweeted out that line, and I thought it was a bad joke that they were making. I didn't realize that it was his actual platform. Oh, no. It's his, yeah. his whole thing. <laughs> The his whole thing got. is too cool to be a nerd. That's felt. That's not his whole it's thing. It's the best he's got. I really also enjoy that we wanted to end on a silver lining, and then we actually ended on saying it's bad, and he should feel bad. About it. <laughs> yeah. Well, we showed the light, and then threw some shade on it. I'm into it. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, another great episode, guys. It's uh, done. And, well, gals. Another great episode. Y'all, gender niche. Y'all, <laughs> gender um, And to our listeners out there, like I said, we are going to keep trying to get new episodes out, hopefully every Tuesday. Uh, there's a lot of hopefullys and probablys and mostlys in that sentence, but... Definitely we will, subscribe. We will definitely Done. be just, trying our just best. Just let us do the pitches. Uh, yeah. We are on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. We have standalone website, midwest-nice.pinecast.co. Uh, Go and check us out there, and we will see you next week.